Good morning, and good morning to everybody watching online. For those of you who are sitting in with us today, when you sat down, uh, there is a cup for us to participate and partake of communion together. So our communion with God and with each other at this moment. If you're watching online, we encourage you to get a piece of bread and some juice or wine as we will partake of communion here in a bit. But you can take that and just set it to the side. Um, also encourage you to consistently be looking at our social media feeds and what we're doing. It's a way that we are communicating to you. Many of you get emails as well. But we're excited you're with us this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 2. In many people's Bibles, this is a section that states that Jesus cleanses the temple. So I'm just going to read a few of the first verses of this section, um, and then we're going to do chapter 2, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. But I, right now, I'm just going to read verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coin of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade." His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray. Father, we ask um, your grace upon us this morning. We pray that you'd show us your heart. Um, God, I pray for those of us who come in this morning and are just cloudy, um, maybe just feeling indifferent, and it's hard to even focus or even care. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes and enliven our hearts. God, I pray for those who are hurting and in pain here this morning, uh, that you would stand with them, that you would show them your care and your love. Um, God, I pray for too many of us, myself included, whose hearts are just hard and are easily calloused. God, that you would soften our hearts and show us the power of uh, you giving us new hearts that beat for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've been really thoughtful uh, lately. If you guys were here last week, I shared some of the situation we're in the midst of the church as we sit in the midst of this situation in wider culture, but I've been thinking a lot. And when you think a lot, it takes you back to places and makes you remember certain things. And it's all the way you make meaning of the situations and times in which you were living. But I've been thinking a lot about tables. I've been thinking a lot about my family table that I mentioned last week of how many friends we've had at different points that sit at our family table, the home I grew up in uh, just outside of Denver, Colorado. But I was also thinking recently I took a trip to Long Island. And I have to tell you up front, I never knew how long Long Island really was. There were some things about Long Island I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know there were wineries all up and down it. I didn't know how beautiful it was. And I honestly did not know there were houses that cost as much as the houses in the Hamptons. I mean, it is unbelievable. Like you drive through there and you pull up Zillow and it's like house for $62 million. Like I'm going, that is a lot of cheese, right? $62 million is a lot of money. I had the best lobster roll um, I've ever had in my life, but I sat at a table with a really dear friend of mine named Joe. He's an Italian man, um, and at this home, he's got a great house uh, in this area called Shoreham. 
we sat out there and one night there was this amazing moment at this family table in which we sat there and he's, his wife Mary is there um, and then one of his really good friends from decades ago, Mark is sitting at the table, I'm sitting at the table, his son comes in who's a, a 30 some odd year old business guy and now just outside their home they have this little apartment that Joe's first wife lives in. Now right away everybody's like, Wait a minute. So like he lives with his wife and now his first wife lives there. Well, they all came to this table and there were a lot of things I loved about it. But the thing I'd say is the ruthless realism of the moment was phenomenal. They're an Italian family and Italian family dinners are both beautiful and highly tense. Right, So you have all of that there. You have these moments of interaction that you know go into years of relationship and years of disrupted relationship, years of tremendous amounts of pain, but this passion for reconciliation of this family was astonishing. And when I say it was real, it was so real. And I left, and honestly, I felt like a lot of times when you say you feel like you've touched love, you feel like... That would be a feeling like when I read a Hallmark card with a cloud on it. But all of us are like, that is not what real love feels like at all. Like at all. And many of us sit right here right now, and I said this last week, and we're living in times that are the most divided times, but that plays out in so many of our families. I can't believe the number of people I'm talking to that as they plan for Thanksgiving, um, for Christmas, or even for the upcoming Sunday dinner are saying they can't get their whole families together. Now, can I just get an amen to this? When you talk about keeping families together, I have four young kids, essentially 14 and a half and under, and it's hard enough to get us all at a table and keep us all there, certainly keep us all there happy, that's for sure. But I've watched many families and even watched my own. As kids get raised and now your kids may go out and get married, to keep together what was your nuclear family that now is an extended family is like harder than rocket science, right? I mean, it's like how in the world does this possibly happen? And divisions begin to happen. But the power of a table that works towards reconciliation is absolutely profound. And there's something at a family table that many of us who didn't have it crave. It may be the reason we're so angry right now and angry with the world. To those of us who had it and lost it, maybe you had parents and you're older now and maybe you just lost an 80-year-old parent, you still crave the moments you were together. Or you had kids who were once in the home and now they're out of the home and you crave that. There is this reality of the power of the family table that is so profound and so essential so essential to understanding Jesus and the Bible, but certainly the scene. So let's jump into the scene. This is John chapter two. Remember, there's this whole wedding in Cana that has just happened, and now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. John chapter two, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, that's a verse so easily we just pass over, no pun intended, with the Passover, but... The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, amazing, in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says that Jesus did this every year with his parents. Every single year, they would gather up their family and they would take the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
Now it took them a lot longer to get to Jerusalem and ultimately to the temple than it took any of you to get here this morning, right? The way they traveled, they certainly didn't have vehicles, they didn't have light rail, um, they didn't have this. This was a journey. But the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I wanna say this again, he had done this every single year. So I would say on his journey to Jerusalem at this moment, he's thinking about some things. He's thinking about his life with his nuclear family. He's thinking about Joseph and he's thinking about Mary and he's thinking about his brothers. He's remembering times they'd made this journey before to celebrate the Passover. He's likely thinking about the Passover as itself as it's recorded in the book of Exodus. He's thinking about how it shaped his ethnic people, the people of the Jews. He's thinking about how it shaped him and their family meals during Passover. If you're in this room and you don't know about this, which I know I was there once as well, or you're just going, I don't totally remember. If you remember in the book of Exodus, the Jews are these oppressed people under Egypt and the Egyptians are pleading for their freedom, that they would be set free from the tyranny of Egypt. And the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh at the time, continues to say no, and God does these astounding signs, astounding signs, amazing signs. You're like, why is this guy not listening? And he'll listen for a moment, and then his heart will get hard. And he'll listen for a moment, and God hardens his heart. But this final scene is God saying, I'm gonna kill all the firstborn of Egypt. And then he tells the Israelites that they are to kill a lamb and place the blood of the lamb over the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes through, all of those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, he will pass over. So he passes over all of those with the blood on their doorposts that he told the Jews. And then all of the firstborn of Egypt dies. And this is this final scene or sign where Pharaoh says, go. Then he regrets it, he chases after him. Then you have the Red Sea and ultimately the freedom of the Jews. So they celebrate that every single year. Now, when they celebrate it, they celebrate it by going to the temple where there's all kinds of sacrifices as well. Now, sacrifices are the shedding of blood that the life would leave the sacrifice, expressing many things, but one in particular is this verse in the book of Leviticus in the law that says the life is in the blood. So when the blood was over the doorposts at Passover, it was communicating blood must be shed to bring about freedom. As you play out the narrative, freedom from what? As we begin to see Jesus in his teaching and all of the New Testament, it's ultimately freedom from sin, which brings about death, sin which is disobedience and not listening to God, not loving God as we should and not loving our neighbors as our should. So Jesus is thinking about that Passover, the Passover of the Jews, all of his history with it. As he's taking this journey, he's thinking in three categories that all of us think in all the time. He's thinking about God. My sense at some level, whether it was a little bit or a lot, as you came this morning to worship on a Sunday, you thought about God. Here's the other thing he thought about himself, his identity. Right? He's thinking about all these years where he's grown up and what it ultimately means. And then he's thinking about family. We already talked about that. These family dinners that happen during Passover to this day. 
right? Neil could speak about this to us. I grew up in a community with lots of Jews, and when Passover came, they'd invite us at times, and we got to participate in meals that they had for multiple days during these times where they'd celebrate this. So he's thinking about God, his identity, and family. God, his identity, and family. Likely the same things that his parents are thinking about and his brothers are thinking about. But he's got this real interesting wrestle with his own identity. What we're about to see is that he acknowledges now, we don't know exactly when Jesus, along his growing up level, um, was aware of the fact that he was God and the Messiah. Maybe at the very beginning and not, here he certainly does. So the Passover of the Jews is at hand and Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. The reason we don't wanna just sketch over that is there's things in his head. And here's what I want you to see very clearly. Jesus enters into the temple in this next verse with a very clear picture in his head. A very clear picture of what he's up to that we began to see him speak about at the wedding of Cana when he turns water into wine and he says to his mother, woman, my time has not yet come. He's very aware of a time and ultimately what it's about to accomplish. Some weeks ago when we started in the Gospel of John, I used an image to all of us in here and the image fundamentally was a puzzle. And I said, what's the worst thing that can happen to you when you're putting together a complex puzzle? And some people at that time yelled out and they went, lose some pieces. I went, worse than that. What would it be? Lose the box. Why? Because on the box is the picture of what the puzzle is. And the picture that the Bible teaches us that Jesus had in him is the end game of this all is a family table in which Jesus Christ sits at the head of the table as the master of ceremonies with his people, multinational, multicultural, multi-generational, way beyond just living. We sit under a great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. Many of your own family sit in that cloud. Multi-generational, multi-tradition, multicultural, multi-economic, they all sit at this table that he calls his family, other language, he calls his body, very intimately he calls his bride. He is on, you could say, a rescue mission to remember a family that's been dismembered. Now think about that word for a minute. Remember, if I said, what's the opposite of remember? You'd go forget. But actually based upon the word, it's dismember, to pull apart, to fracture. Jesus has a picture in his mind that what God's ultimately doing with the world, he's reflecting in a family that he's remembering his people as the family of God ultimately. That when he thinks about a table, he thinks about a table of incredible relationship the one that echoes to us of what we know it should be if we grew up in a family that was broken or that you never knew of, that you have remembrances of something you may never have had and you may be angry that you never had the mom or dad of the family that you wanted, but you know coming out of the very essence of who you are what it should be like. Others of us have experienced it. I've articulated before and I'll articulate again. I came from an amazing family. And if I said the place I feel freest is at that family table where I know no matter what happened, whether I was nine or whether I'm 49, I'm not 49 yet, but whether I'm 49, like I'm there, that's my family. 
That family table with sin sucked out of it is what Jesus is up to. That's in Jesus's mind as he's moving to Jerusalem. He's thinking about God, his identity, and family all together with this picture in his mind. Now, when I said that to you, I said there's four fundamental pieces to that puzzle where the end is the wedding supper of the lamb, this moment of the groom with his bride. And I said the four fundamental pieces where Jesus is God, God is love, God says for us to love as he loved sacrificially, which feels impossible, which is why the fourth piece was we need outside power from God through his Holy Spirit. Jesus is God, God is love, God called us to love as he loved, and we need outside power through his Holy Spirit. That's the picture when Jesus now gets to verse 14. So now Jesus comes to the temple, and in the temple, he finds those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers are sitting there. Where are they sitting? What? Say it. At tables. Now think about this for a minute. So Jesus walks in with a picture in his mind as you carry out the total whole of this table that's a table of transformation because it's a table of real relationship. It's a table of love. It's a table where the head of the table says, I will never leave you or forsake you and when you forsake me, I'll forgive you. It's that kind of table. You're like, that's a family, a real family table. We're in it till the end. The kind of table that you sit out in the midst of a wedding when you say these vows for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That kind of table. He has that picture in his mind, but he shows up at a different kind of table in the temple. He shows up to a table of transactions. So really, we're walking into a scene that's a tale of two tables. Tables of transaction that are ultimately about tables of transaction. Here's what I mean by that. It's a moment where I say, I'll give you what you want only to get what I want. That's a table of transaction. It really isn't about you. It's about me getting what I want. And then you're saying to me, it really isn't about you. It's about me getting what I want. Now, transactions in and of themselves aren't bad. And I'm going to show you in a minute, they weren't even bad here, even in the midst of the temple. So there are people in this room right now that do business with transaction after transaction after transaction. Some of you lead nonprofits and you're doing transactions all the time. Transactions in and of themselves are not bad. They're a way of life. They're how we do exchange of goods but some people in here believe fundamentally that business or life is about transactions, just the exchange of what you want and what I want. And we miss the fact that the heart of the world really is about relationships. But then there are people who run businesses where they put people at the center and put relationships at the center. And people will say, my workplace is the most transformative environment I've ever been in in my entire life. And they end up making profit. There's research based on it that many people would argue they make more profit because they realize the most important capital that they have is people. 
and they recognize the world runs on relationship and they don't use a network or who you know to just get what they want, but to actually bring about the good of another person. That's the word transformation. So you have these two tables sitting in you when Jesus walks in of, is there a table of just transaction or a table of transformation that's rooted in relationship, ultimately about love? And he walks in to the temple that he's gonna define in a minute, his father's house. This sacred space that God gave the design for that even Gentiles could look in and wonder at the greatness of God. This incredible path to worship where you, when you read the law, there were incredible provisions made for people that didn't have enough money to even participate in worship. Moments where walls were being divided or even erected to ultimately display in the end they would be divided because what God was doing in the world was not dividing the world, but uniting the world in his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus walks into this temple and what he finds is tables of transaction. Now, here's what I wanna say to you. A lot of times when we approach this passage, we'll get to this line that he says next. So in verse 15, he says this, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Then he makes this statement in verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these away, do not make my father's house into a house of trade. Now you can go back to verse 14. So he makes the statement, don't turn my father's house into a house of trade. Now here's where this passage gets really complicated is in Deuteronomy chapter 14, there's this provision made that there were gonna be people as the tabernacle, was the, which was the preceding um, place of the temple where Jews would go to worship. And he said, as you're moving along the way and gathering things to go and worship, because at the place of worship at this time, sacrifices were essential. And so think, they're taking their kids. I mean, you just think about Joseph and Mary even going to the actual temple. They would go a long way journey and it's really hard to bring along with you a bunch of animals that you're gonna offer for a sacrifice, right? It's hard enough to carry kids and get them to church today, correct? Like with a vehicle. Imagine you had to bring all your pets too, right? Like that's a problem, right? Or all these, you're going whatever. So there's this provision that people would be able to sell objects for sacrifice or animals for sacrifice in the midst of this. So if we try to turn this passage immediately into can, there can be no trade, no transaction of any kind happening inside any space of worship, that's not what it's saying. So if you're mad at Neil because of the commons, because of this passage, you're wrong, right? <laughs> that's not what he's saying. He's saying fundamentally what happened for the purpose to promote God's love for the world and the people of God's love for that same world because of the love they experienced in God had been turned from a table that would bring about transformative love and you've turned it into a table of simple trade and transaction. That he all of a sudden looked at those tables and he went, you're here for you. You are now here to bring about money. You are establishing injustice. You are overlooking the needy. You are looking at this primarily as a business transaction in which you can get what you want and they can get what they want when the center of this fundamentally is about loving relationship that brings about transformation. Here's the primary problem. They have a different picture on their box in the same house. 
And Jesus now gets possessive. He's like, this is my house. (laughs) This is my dad's house. Don't you think for a minute you're gonna operate tables of transaction for your own good when these are meant to be here as tables of transformation for the world's good? So he sees these oxen, these sheep, and these pigeons, these money changers sitting there. Let's go back through the slower. And making a whip of cords. This is profound. Because in the other gospels, in many of the other gospels, it actually says he took a day to do this. So the whole idea of this passage being primarily about Jesus' anger, right? You think when you get raging angry, you can hardly get the key of your car in the ignition. Like you're like, you can't even do that. And yet he's making a whip of cords. So he's like weaving, right? You ever see a woman crocheting? It's really hard to crochet angry. I have no idea because I've never tried it in my life, but I imagine it's really hard, right? So he's putting together a whip of cords. He's actually very non-anxious within himself, and he's making this whip of cords. Like I said, gospels, other gospels actually say it took a day to do it. So he makes this whip of cords, to ultimately whip this temple, to whip these tables of only transaction. He drives them all out of the temple. He drives out the sheep. He drives out the oxen. He pours out the coins of the money changers. Take your dirty money. And then he takes these tables, these tables of transaction. And he turns them over. Now, if you're there and you're in this scene, now just imagine this. Like it's Passover, everybody's like, you know, Hava Nagila, right? They're doing all their thing, they're ready, they're doing their stuff, they're ready to have a feast together, but now they're coming to worship. They're like, okay, we gotta get about this, we're going through it, we're doing these things. And now this guy walks in, he's taking this whip, whoops, throwing money over and turning over tables. And he seems to be doing it in his right mind. You're like, this guy's not even nuts. Like, what is this guy doing? So now all eyes are on him. Like, what is he going to say? And here's what he says, verse 16. And he tells those. So he doesn't say to the whole crowd. He looks at those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Now they're going like, well, the law tells us to use pigeons. Like there's multiple forms of sacrifice. We can do all this. Take those things away. Don't make my father's house into a house of trade. And they're going, well, like, we have provisions for this. We can do it. And at that point, I'm certain his eyes are like, like he could stare through a wall, right? Like burn through glass. He's very serious here. Take these things away. Don't make. And when you go, what's his fundamental issue? Is it trade? Or is it his father's house? Well, I know what, the disciples think, look at verse 17, the disciples go, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now go back to verse 16. It's that something in the trade itself is tarnishing, is making impure his father's house. And he's possessive about his father's house. Now, how do we understand his father's house? Because this language is used even at times of the church. It's like you're coming into the house of God. So as we as Christians read who Jesus is and how he begins to ultimately articulate the father's heart. Now, listen to this. 
You cannot understand the culture of a house without understanding the heart of its owners. Okay? So if you want to understand the house of the father, get to know the heart of the father. There's a lot of different ways to do this. But one, in Luke chapter 15, you see these series of parables that are happening. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, or you may have heard it stated as the parable of the prodigal son. The whole reason Jesus is telling these stories and the story of the prodigal son is to express the heart of the father. Now, I just want to ask you um, briefly, if you think about the heart of a good father, now, again, we have to acknowledge here that some of us grew up with no fathers or bad fathers, and it's very hard for you to understand experientially what a good father is. But it's not hard for you to understand the idea of a good father. And this is why I want to say you know that, because you're mad that you didn't have one. You're sad that you didn't have one. Not all of us have had the experience of a good one, but we have the idea of a good one. Some of us do have the experience of a good one. I told a story last week. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I grew up in a home that was loving in every single way. And the security that brought about me mentally, emotionally, and even physically is astounding even at this day when I'm over 40 years old. It's absolutely profound. So when you think about the heart of a good father and what that, how that manifests in a home, it doesn't always look the same way, but one theme that comes out is there's less anxiety because there's such security. Because there's such this sense of like, I'm gonna be okay because I have my family. The heart of my parents, the heart of my, for many of you, it might be the heart of your mother, but it's good. So in order to understand what the father's house is, we have to understand the heart of the father. And the parable of the prodigal son is this moment. Understand the picture again. God's heart is a unifying, together heart for his family. In all what he's doing in the world, he's taking that which has been dismembered because of sin. Now stop for a minute, and I'm gonna challenge you. On your phone or on a piece of paper, write this passage down. Read Romans 13. Most of you know that passage because it teaches about government. The reality of Romans 12, 13, and 14 is all a section on love. And he gets to this point in Romans 13 at the back half after he talks about government, and he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. And he says all of these things, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. And he essentially defines sin as anti-love. Sin breaks love. Now, when sin is anti-love, that means all of these words we read in the New Testament, maturity, righteousness, when Paul says his whole work is to present every believing person, male and female, as complete in Christ, if you interpret that through one of the greatest letters of all time, that means to complete them in love. Paul says this to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a sound mind, and a good conscience. Right? So when you begin to understand that, and now you see the prodigal son, here's what the younger son says. He goes, hey, father, I know we have all this stuff, but divide your portfolio now and give me my share. Now remember the word, read the passage. 
separate unto me, divide for me what's mine. Now, if love is Godward orientation and others orientation, this is why this church father, Augustine, said sin is this radical curvature inward. And when we turn in on ourselves, Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God, they recognize they're naked, they turn in. That's why Augustine said it. That separates me from God, from myself, and from my neighbor and the wider world. Okay, you beginning to see this? It makes me not love God, not live within myself, and not love others, ultimately. Okay, so that's what the, the younger son's saying. Divide. Give me my share and let me leave. Now the father goes, no way. He doesn't say that. He goes, okay, that's what you want to do? Go for it. Like, take your share. He goes, plunders all his money, uses it all, spends it all, doesn't have anything left. His life is trash because when you live in the lies of fear that lead you into the lies of self, you end up in a pig pen. Division leads to death. So he ends up in this pig pen and he starts going, man, the servants in my father's house are treated better than I'm eating right now. He treats his servants like sons. So he goes, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go back to my father. I'm gonna say, forgive me for everything I did, but just let me live as a servant in your house because I've been eating like a pig. And he goes and he's on a journey asking these same questions likely Jesus was asking, questions about God, questions about his identity, questions about his family. And he begins to take this path fundamentally as he's walking back and he's thinking, my father likely will stand at a distance. He may not even offer me forgiveness. I won't even be able ultimately to be a son. Where does that leave me? But as the father who's looking out in the horizon, seemingly in the story where Jesus is trying to articulate and communicate the heart of the father, the father's looking out, waiting for his son to return. When he sees his son, he says, I'm gonna make that slug walk the whole way. I'm gonna make him grovel on the ground and ask for forgiveness. I'm gonna show him, prove to him how wrong he was. Be honest with yourself, is that what you do? Someone really close to you just took all your stuff, ran with it, blew it, used it on themselves, divided your family, made your heart bleed and bleed and bleed and beat it up and beat it up and beat it up. Your heart's getting hard and cynical and you're angry and they go, I want to come ask you for your forgiveness. And you're like, over my dead body. Like, there's... The father doesn't do that. It says he's looking in the distance when he sees his son. He doesn't even kind of wait. He sprints. He's willing to make himself look foolish. It makes me wonder, like, did he trip along the way, right? And then get up. Like, did he have scrapes on his arm like my son that was running the other night around the park and slipped and fell and got all the concrete all over him? Like, I wonder if he slipped and fell, but just got back up and he's just sprinting to his son. And when he gets to his son, his son's like trying to say like, you know, you know, imagine what the son's thinking at that moment. Like, what, what is going on? What is going on? And he's like, dad, forgive me. Dad, forgive me. Boom. His dad just grabs him. Then you think his dad's going to be like, why did you do that, son? Do you know how much I missed you? Maybe it's a little bit better than you would do or, or whatever. Do you know how much? He, he doesn't even say that. He turns around and starts screaming, strike up the band. Prepare the best meal. Get him suited in the best clothes. For my son 
who was lost is back. I don't even think the lost son, he just wanted crumbs from the father's table. He just wanted a drop of refreshment of his father's water. And his father presents pools of mercy. That he would be baptized in the father's mercy and the father's love. And that was all to communicate the heart of the father. Now he goes back and the older son is operating at a table of transaction. What's going on? Your brother who was lost is now found. Do you know what he did? Do you know what he didn't do? Do you know what? Do you realize what he did to you? Are you kidding me? And here's what the father says. Son, to the older son, all that I have has been yours all along. I don't operate at tables of transaction. I operate at tables of relationship. I've never held on on you. If you had asked, I would have given it to you like your brother. The point is that we're a family. What's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. The older brother can't handle it and in turn shows himself more lost than that which we call the prodigal son. So when Jesus looks at tables of transaction and he has zeal for his father's house, don't think about the house as this place of worship where you gotta make sure and do absolutely everything right. He's like, you've missed the whole point. And that's when the disciples say, oh, they remembered zeal for his father's house will consume him. They're remembering these passages that their scriptures testified to. This is in verse 17 here. His disciples remember what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I want to use that word a little creatively because I said to you already, the word remembered, the opposite isn't just forgetting, it's dismembering. Sin is anti-love. Anti-love dismembers our world, our country, our communities, our church, our families, our lives, remembering according to what God says literally remembers us. And they remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now this is a really interesting phrase because that term zeal actually means passion. And throughout the gospels many times and in John, when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, it's predicting or communicating his path to the cross. That word zeal means passion. That's a word that's used for Jesus's actions and movement towards the cross, passion for your house. What do you think about? If you think about God's house, the picture in God's mind is a table where God is at the head and his bride is at the table in festive celebration of the mercy of the Father. Zeal for your house will consume. That word consume means either overwhelm, far better stated, obliterate me. Passion for your house will obliterate me. Zeal for your house will consume me. That zeal for that reconciled table is why when his mother comes up to him just previously in this chapter and says, hey, they ran out of wine, he goes, woman, my time has not yet come. Because he knew in order to bring about the ultimate festive celebration, he'd have to be obliterated. 
So now the scene moves on in verse 18. So the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us for doing this? Turning over tables, dumping out chains, doing all of this. Now, what's so amazing about this at the end of this chapter, which I'm not gonna bring it up right now, but he says specifically, he does all these signs in Jerusalem. Some people begin to believe in him, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself. Look at the end of chapter two, entrust himself to them because he knew what was within them. What is within human beings? Sin. What is sin there for? Anti-love. What does anti-love bring about? Dismembering, disintegration, division. So he doesn't entrust himself to him. He says, I have a task to do. So now the Jews go, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus is like, you want a sign? You want another sign? And here's how he communicates the sign. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews are like, what? Herod spent 46 years on this thing. 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rise it up in three days? What's going on, folks? Totally different picture on the box. This is a house of transaction. What you're doing isn't right. What you're doing is entirely wrong. Deep-seated in them. They haven't communicated it yet. They will kill this man. He's turning over our whole apple cart. He's throwing the box out saying we have the wrong picture. What are you even talking about? You'll raise it up in three days. Folks, what was he talking about? Think about what he's saying here. He's like the epicenter of your whole life is the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was like what would be the equivalent of Mecca, Wall Street, and the Silicon Valley all wrapped up in one. It was the hotspot of hotspots. The place Jews felt like life was disseminated to the world. And Jesus is going, you know where life is disseminated to the world? In me. I'm the temple. Destroy me, and in three days I will raise myself up again. You want to know how we know that that's true? Look at verse but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's like, folks, the whole point of this was that you would see me. The whole point of me is that I would take in myself all of the division, all of the dismembering of sin, all of your anti-love, and I take it up all in myself and allow it to obliterate me so that abundant life Real life, life that's worthy of the word could be disseminated to the world. And you can partake of that or you cannot. Which one do you want? Do you want to live at tables of transaction? In your craving frames, I'm asking you now directly, you now directly, all of us directly, do you want a system of where everything's docked when you do something wrong and then everything's credited your account when you do everything right, and it's like, that's it. Do you want God to have that heart? Like when you fail him, he stands at a distance, goes, you better get it right. Or do you want the heart of the father in the parable of the prodigal son? Do you want him to run after you? Do you want him to throw a party on your behalf? Not because what you did was worthy of a party, but because you're worthy that he's ravished in love with you. Do we want to pay the penalty for our own sin? Or are we willing to really believe that there is a God who 
presents in front of us pools of mercy because he takes his sin in himself and he gets obliterated. Now the disciples, when it's all done, verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And here's what remembering does. It remembers because it believes the scriptures and the words that Jesus has spoken. Have you? Have we? Do we believe ultimately, ultimately the picture that Jesus has that his whole point is a family table? Do we believe that love is the greatest thing and the hardest thing in the world? Do we believe fundamentally that we don't have the power to accomplish it in the only way we get it and we see it is Jesus being obliterated on our behalf? That we see in his power of his resurrection how committed God is to put together this family table. Do we believe that? That's how we encounter life, abundant life, eternal life. Folks, I would appeal to you right now, that is what every person in this room, whether you acknowledge Christ or you don't, desperately, desperately wants. That there is someone far more powerful than you that can deal with your own stuff and your own sin and the world's sin and the world's stuff that ultimately has a passion to bring us all back in festive celebration with him as the master of the table, the head of the feast, just communicating how much he loves his family. Is that what we want? The question is, do we believe that? That's what we celebrate every single week. So we're gonna have a moment to celebrate here together specifically. And in this moment, this moment doesn't come about but other than in the obliteration of Jesus's body with our sin being placed upon him. So when we come, this moment is a moment of reflection. It is a moment of being remembered by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ which means we've got to bring to him our sin, all of our anti-love. So this is a moment of reflection where you go, Lord, where have I not believed this? Where have I not trusted this? Where is my life moving more towards division and dismembering because of not loving than actually loving? And this will present in front of your face the impossibility of you being able to love like this and you go, Lord, help us. But he loves us. And he shows it to us in his very body. So I'm gonna pause and we're not gonna take this together right now, but I'm gonna just give you a few minutes to partake of this on your own as you eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ in his love for us. And then we're gonna come up and right now the band's gonna come up and we're gonna say strike up the band. And we're gonna celebrate the way the father celebrated with the lost son fundamentally because of who Jesus is and his zeal for his father's house. But here's the thing, before, right after you partake of this, I'm gonna ask you to pray one prayer. Pray that Jesus' passion for reconciliation becomes our passion. Our passion to see people who are not reconciled to God be reconciled to God. Our passion to see our families that are fractured be reconciled. Our passion to see our church, which has gone through and going through aspects of fracturing to be reconciled. And ultimately, that we'd pray for our country and for our world to be reconciled in Christ. Can we pray that prayer? Let's pray. God, I pray that as we partake of your body and your blood, God, you'd give us your passion. First and foremost, that we would see your zeal on our behalf, taking away our sin. And God, that it would give us the power 
to move into places that feel impossible and feel risky. God, show us your love and shower us in it. In Christ's name, amen.